Hi, I'm Jimmy Coe. And I'm Stephen Hawk. And we're the host of the Cosmic Sponge Podcast, where we explore the unknown from UFOs and cryptids to unexplained disappearances and ancient mysteries. If you're looking for strange stories that will keep you on the edge of your seat, jump on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or search for Cosmic Sponge on your favorite listening platform. Head on over to our website at www.cosmicsponge.com to get access to all of our content, including a full list of platforms where you can enjoy the show. Hi, Techie Joe here. I work with Asa Knight and some of the best psychics in West Virginia to create amazing live streams and podcasts for the Psychic Coffee Shop Network. Together, we brew up great content discussing news, events, hot topics, and more, all from a psychic perspective. On the Psychic Coffee Shop, we interview amazing authors in the metaphysical realm. Coffee and Tea combines Asen with Tracy, Dottie, Natalie, or Lady Gwendolyn for the good and the bad of being a psychic. Shameless self-promotion with Dottie the Psychic talks to leading and emerging YouTubers and business owners in our community. Mountain Bears brings you the latest in LGBT news and politics. The Psychic That Plans answers the question of, well, how a psychic plans. Plus, we're live on air. We take your comments and your questions, including psychic advice questions. Check out our amazing programming, book an appointment with top psychics, and find out all the wonderful things we have to offer at PCSBnetwork.com today. Tonight's episode is brought to you by the members of the Esoteric Archive, specifically... Grand Inquisitor Annie Kay, Grand Inquisitor Samantha, and Soul Rising Studios. Special thanks to Llewellyn Publications for not only providing me with a free copy of the book, but also for giving me the opportunity to talk with the author. Now, let's get weird. Hmm. Welcome to the Esoteric Footnotes. Welcome back, Goblins! Tonight we have a special guest. New author, Ben Stimson, author of Ancestral Whispers, which is the previous episode that you just heard. Good morning, Ben. How are you? I'm doing amazing. How are you? I'm wonderful. Two cups of coffee in and I am ready to go. (laughs) Same. (laughs) Let's start out by giving a little background about you. Who are you? Where are you from? What drove you to write this book? Yeah, for sure. So um, I I currently live in Ontario, Canada. Um, I'm a therapist and also student. I'm completing a, a bachelor in liberal arts with a focus on uh, medieval studies, uh, religious studies and classical studies. Um, I'm originally from the United Kingdom. So I grew up in, well, I, I partly grew up in North Wales. And that's that becomes a big part of, of, of kind of the book and why I, I wrote the book. Um, so so I um I started out um originally in social work. Uh, I'm a little bit older, so uh, back when in the 2000s I, I started out in social work, trained in that, and then dropped out of that, and uh, and kind of went on a roller coaster for about ten years. I I wasn't really I wasn't sure what direction my life was leading. 
So um, what eventually happened was I fell into several spiritual traditions. One was um, Santeria Lakumi, and the other one was uh, a, um, a kind of an experimental spirituality group that worked with Joseph Campbell's monomyth. And throughout that process, I, I started to become a lot more aware of my story. Um, and I, I eventually ended up going back and training in psychotherapy. So from 2017 to 2019, I was training in psychotherapy. And it kind of all sorts of things came together in that time. But a big part of my work with Lakumi Santeria was ancestral work. And then in this psychotherapy program, a big part of that was also working with family story. Um, we, we come from like a family systems point of view, which is seeing the individual as part of ever increasing systems uh, of the family, of the community, of the region, and so on and so on. So having both of those pieces in line with each other in parallel after I had done a lot of my own therapy work after I'd, I'd done a lot of healing work for myself it kind of naturally became a really big part of my life and a big part of my story too something that I have always wanted was a connection to home and not being from Canada I live in Ontario Canada right now not being from this place but growing up in this place I never really bonded with it I never really connected with it and so it, it was kind of like I was always directed to Virginia Loci of the United Kingdom. I was always looking to my ancestors back home. I was always trying to find my story in, in, in the world, but it was always somewhere else. So 2019, I finished my psychotherapy program and I started to develop a course around working in ancestral work. Uh, the program I, I was taking was spiritual psychotherapy. So a lot of transpersonal Jungian um, approaches. So a lot of spiritual approaches. And uh, and so I thought, you know, there's not really much out there. Um, there are some things out there for ancestor work. Daniel, uh, Dr. Daniel Four is one of them, and then a couple of books. But there's not really a big focus on this work. I, I, I learned eventually that there was, but it was just it's a very hidden thing, at least at that point. So I, I started putting together a course for clients. I run some beta tests for that. And then the pandemic hit and suddenly had a lot of time and our government in Canada gave us a lot of financial support. And so I had a lot of time and I was being financially supported to stay home. Um, so I started to write this book and that's kind of two and a half years later. And now I have a book. <laughs> and it is probably one of the most, ex it's strange to say this. It's an extensive book. It covers a lot of topics, but it's not a gigantic book. No, I was really shocked by that. <laughs> You, you have a very good economy for words. Thank you. The stuff you write and the words you say carry a lot of weight and a lot of meaning. And I'm actually on my second read-through of this book right now. And I'm finding that after completing the book the first time, reading it a second time, I, I get a lot more nuance in the early mm. chapters. I really appreciate that. Thank you. That, uh, that was, it was a bizarre thing writing this because I was relying on a lot of my own experiences, but also a lot of inferences. So I, I really do try to uh, bring in that religious studies background, like religion and, and studying spirituality has been a thing for me since I was a teenager. Same with folklore, same with fairy tale. And, um, and so I know a lot of facts but to bring those facts in to support a point was a really cool journey for me. Um, but, I mean, the process of writing as an outsider 
um, for traditions I don't belong to, even if those traditions feel like some of the traditions I belong to. It was a, a fascinating journey. So I made a lot of connections in those communities just to to get a sense of, you know, am I, is this actually right? Like, is this not just a lens that some white anthropologist has said, um, uh, you know, is this actually the, the case? And, and studying the words of, of insiders and, and really privileging insider words um, and, and points of view and understanding was, was a big thing. So I learned a lot through just writing this myself. And, and even then, like looking at it, like flipping it open every so often, I'm like, wow, this is really good. I need to use this. I need to write this down somewhere, you know? <laughs> I, I imagine that would be difficult, especially saying that you, you had a background in, let me see if I can pronounce this correctly, Lakumi? Mm-hmm, yes. Lakumi and Santeria, that is not your tradition, but you were you weren't initiated, but you were invited to certain ceremonies and you had an understanding, a firsthand understanding of the ceremonies and processes. So how did you go about writing about that as like a semi-outsider, but not really? Well, so so with my, my experience with Lakumi, although I and I, I, I'm very particular in the book to explain this, I don't want anybody to misunderstand me. So I, I never initiated into Lakumi, but I actually moved in with my godfather. Um so how Lakumi and uh, slash Santeria like many African traditional religions are, is uh, it's godfather family-based. So um, a priest takes on students who really are godchildren. Um, the priest shepherds those individuals into the religion or into the tradition, and then they become part of a community. So I actually moved in while I was studying. Uh, I, I was uh, doing a psychotherapy program up in Toronto, and where I had been living with my parents, it was about three hours away. So moving in with uh with david was uh it, it made more sense there was also a guy down there too that i was interested in um so i i moved in and for two years i actually lived with him his partner and his orishas and so actually living in a household where you can experience the lived culture of that religion every day was a was a big thing like i've seen some incredible things i i still have a huge amount of affection for his orisha who's he who he's a priest for Oshun. But um, but I have to be very honest with that and say I did not initiate. So there's certain parts of the tradition I'll never be able to speak about with any authority because I don't have that, that lived experience. I don't have that 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 training. I don't have that side. So really, uh, um, in the tradition, they're called aborishas. That's those students who are, are kind of without anything yet, and uh, but they're very very invited to the ceremonies. They're very still involved. Um, but they're almost like children within the traditions. So, um, so to be able to write from that point of view, and and it caused a lot of discussions between David and I. You know, there, there were a lot of pieces where, when I had written it down, I went to him and I said, you know, is this appropriate? Is this something that would, you know, be something that any readership outside would be privileged to know? The vast majority of the times, my instincts were correct, and because it was my ancestral work that I was talking about and not, you know, the inner dynamics of how to perform a certain ritual. It, it made it a lot easier, but having that dialogue really helped. And, um, and there was some times where he said, you know, I don't think this is necessarily a good thing to write about, or I would check with whoever you're talking about here if they're okay with that. 
which is also a, a part of the writing process, you know. So, so really, it was a community effort. I, I, I hit the ground running with connecting with people, with seeking that permission, seeking that clarification too, because memory can be a strange thing. I could be remembering a, a ritual I was part of four years ago, and all sorts of things can seep into it. So, so that was an interesting piece to that. Now, one other thing that popped up when I was reading the book is, and and correct me if I'm okay in saying this, the, the Tribal Hearth Experimental Group. You mention it, and you mentioned that you used Joseph Campbell's Heroic Cycle, I believe it is, um, or the Monomyth. I'm really curious about that. How do, what's, yes. what's, Can you go into any details on that? Oh, completely. Absolutely. So Tribal Hearth is... Um... Is, is no longer around. It, it unfortunately disbanded during the pandemic because we just weren't able to meet. Um, so the basis of the group, it came together from a coalition of smaller working groups. And, uh, and it came together, I would say, probably about 10 years ago now, something like that. I became involved in 2015. So, uh, and ironically, it was, uh, so, uh, it, was, it was originally kind of came out of one of the pagan festivals in, in Ontario here. And then they started to work together and start to form ideas of 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 going a little bit deeper, and um and and what they did was they they created a ritual cycle over three years, and it was Joseph Campbell's monomyth. So they they took a fairy tale, they created a fairy tale of three siblings, three seekers. And throughout the span of the seven rituals, every every event was a like a week long or a weekend long, and it, the whole weekend was devoted to constructing and building a, a ritual mystery play. So really, mm. it comes from that entering into a story, acting out in in sacred ritual um, the story of 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 this kind of combined um, monomyth, and I was uh, it, it's funny because the pagan campground I had no idea that it was there. It was also a, um, a LARPing venue, and it was a wedding venue and a camping venue, and it was literally half an hour from where I was living, and I had no idea it was even there. Um, at that point in my life, I didn't really have many connections with the festival community in 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 Ontario. A lot of my spirituality was online. It was very insular. So I, uh, I, I went originally um, to Vend, I was introduced to them, and, uh, and they, they were like, oh, well, you know, we have this event coming up, would you like to Vend? Because at that point, I'd started a small vending company selling like crystals and things like that. And, uh, and so I go, and that weekend, I think I spent more time actually going to the workshops and the, fest- uh, like the, the, the actual festival <laughs> events than staying at my, my table. I, I made a big impact, apparently, and um, I was chosen... I was invited to be uh, one of the main kind of actors taking on the role of a seeker. And the role of a seeker was really to be like kind of like the embodiment of the, of the whole tribe, the whole group, and, and, and kind of play out, the, the, play out the, the necessary role within that ritual cycle. So you, you were basically an avatar for the group. Exactly. Yes, a very good way of, of putting it, right? I was I was playing the role. I was playing host to the archetype of the seeker, and then as we went through different rituals in that cycle, um, um, the other two seekers became other archetypes within the system, and uh, and eventually we ended um, after 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 three years, three and a half years, I should say, and it was amazing. Like it was life changing. Some of the things that we did. 
one of my favorite experiences was going to, they, they had constructed a, um, kind of a, a new stone circle. They had placed huge boulders around a huge field and had created a stone circle. And uh, 60 people at one o'clock in the morning on a summer night in the middle of, and, and where it is, it's a dark zone. So there's like no light pollution. In, in, this, in this circle with drums and, and just shamanic drumming, Wow. And going into that kind of quasi quasi reality. And and that really gave me a good sense, a powerful sense of, of the power of story, of how people can enter into story and the dynamics of what happens there. And uh, and eventually that actually led into what made me go into psychotherapy. So it was an incredible experience. It really was. I have to gather my thoughts a bit. <laughs> that was I know, right? It, sounds, <laughs> it, it, it honestly sounds really amazing. I know. I know, and and I can't even like I I'm in, and please don't misunderstand me. I am not taking credit for any of that work. I was a part of it, but the the some of the major actors and uh, some of the major architects of it, um, my friend Adam in particular, he comes from a marketing background, and so the psychology of 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 subtlety and the psychology of suggestion, mm. the psychology of marketing, came into uh, into his work. And of course, they all are very steeped in their own personal practices, um, which which gave gravitas to the event. But you could just tell something was in the air, something was happening, and uh, and it was incredible. Um, so, I, and I think Adam's actually coming up or developing something to be released at some point. So keep an eye out in in the pagan sphere for that. But um, but it, it, what it really grounded me in was, and it was that healing piece. For such a long time, I had been seeking, and to be mm. chosen to be a seeker, and to then go through and be that archetype in this in this way, it really gave me the boost of confidence I needed to actually take control of my life again, and take ownership of my life again, because I suddenly had 150. The group was usually about 150 to 200 people, which is a huge working group. Not all of them would come to all of the events, but all of them, would, you would see them throughout the three years. And so to have that, that backing, um, it completely changed my life. It really did. That's a group size that you normally, I don't, I don't know about the larger cities, but around here, we definitely don't see anything like that, let alone a group of that size collaborating together. Yeah. Especially in a dark zone like that. That had to have just a primal feeling to it. It was it was amazing, and I think I think it speaks to the people who were coming to that. So the way that it was set up, there was usually two events a year. Um, there was a winter retreat which had a, a maximum cap of fifty. So fifty people locked in this lodge that had like like it was like a, a Boy Scouts kind of lodge. Um, so dormitories and then a big open space room, and and that's where we did all of our stuff in the wintertime, middle of, like, middle of nowhere Canada, right? And, uh, and then the, the summer gathering was in the campground, which had, like, 150 come. So, so you certainly had people who were there just to hang out and see old friends and, 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 and be kind of just in the background there. But they were still getting something from just being in that place. So it created multiple, like, spaces for people to come. Um, I'd say the core group of us, it was probably about 60 who were actively like actually taking uh, like participating in the events or, or or being involved in like directly in the rituals, like some of the rituals were developed so that it it, it would include the whole community, 
um, they built a maypole. And I think we had a hundred people Ooh. dancing around this massive maypole, which is incredible that, you know, and it did, I mean, we, we had, uh, <laughs> one of the, one of the major people used to be, um, uh, the chief of a uh, local fire department. And he's, uh, he's also a band, um, a Scottish uh, band conductor. So he's there and he's got a big mustache. I absolutely adore him. And he's <laughs> barking orders out to keep us all in tow, you know. <laughs> I imagine with that many people on a maple, you would almost have to have a, a drum beat to keep everyone in sync. Very much so. And and so we had the drum and uh, one of the other, a lot of the people who were involved in this group were people who would go down to Starwood in the 80s, right? Um, a lot of the people who were part of the older pagan crowd, all of their kids would have gone to the party um, uh, pagan scene. They're more interested in actually doing the work again, right? So we had um, one of the older members of the community um, singing um, Dance, Dance, Wherever you, you May Be. I am the Lord of the Dance, said he, and just repeating that, and that kept us in time, which was which was really fun. So you mentioned earlier that at the time when you joined this group, you felt that you yourself were a seeker, and then you were able to embody that in the play, and eventually that drove you to go into psychotherapy. Do you bring any of your past experience with this group and with mythology, uh, obviously mythology, how do you incorporate all of this into your current practice? Um, so, so part of my work has really been to come to a sense. Listeners are just going to have to deal with my cat. I'm sorry. They're used to it at this point. They hear mine all the time. <laughs> so, uh, part of my work has been to come to a, a place of self again. Um, you know, I went through a really dark period where I didn't feel like I had any future. I didn't feel like I really had a direction of where I was going. And what I realized I was dealing with was I was dealing with culture shock from moving to Canada when I was such a young child. Um, but also what that created in me was a, a weird relationship with control. And so I was really angry for a very, very long time. A lot of these pieces fell into place at the right time. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a big, strong believer in weird. I'm, I'm a big believer in synchronicity. Um, and, uh, and that things happen for a reason when they need to happen. We just have to get out of the way. So what I came to realize through all of these various streams, and I talk about all of them in the book, is that I was getting to a place where I was able to let the past be the past. And so I could exist in the, in the present so that I can create my own future. And, and that's really the, the piece around therapy that I bring in. A lot of my therapy modalities tend to incorporate narrative, story, um, spiritual modalities are a container for that sort of work. And so with the book, for example, ancestral work, a lot of times I think a lot of pagans and witches will look at ancestor work and not really sure what to do mm -hmm. because it's devoted to other people, but it's not deities. And so those other people you might not have a good relationship with because of religious trauma or whatever. The real work is actually how their story shows up in your story and looking at your own story. So a lot of times for my clients, what I do is I, 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 I get them to go back into their story. I don't tend to work with mental health issues, but a lot of the underlying pieces that, that lead people to stress, depression, anxiety, um, feeling hopeless, feeling aimless, all of these pieces. And that is through being listened to, 
experiencing life, experiencing the world. And so that can be through a spiritual lens. That can be through how are you, how are you showing up in the present? How are you breathing? That can be through going and joining a pagan spirituality where a side of you can be free to be looked into. Okay, you went through this ritual with this group. Let's talk about that. What was happening for you in that moment? What was happening for you as you were engaging with this deity or this spirit? Right. Um, another big key, key piece to that is that relationship between kind of the inner reality and the outer reality and that piece around empowerment. You know, I, I think a lot of people come to magic and paganism seeking empowerment for themselves because they're coming from a place of disempowerment. And certainly a lot of the traditions that have developed over the past 50 years have been about empowering certain identities. You know, the vast majority of, of, of male witches that I know are all queer and that's i don't think that's that's a um i don't i, I like that totally makes sense to me because as a male or as a non-binary mask um queer person myself that's my I, I relate to their experiences and where why did we come to these traditions many of us of a certain age um because experiencing homophobia experience marginalization so with my, my therapy clients, I tend to bring in, and I, I, I position myself as kind of a pagan spiritual um, therapist. Um, I'm very interested then in how the spiritual practices, the spiritual interest, the stories of, of deities, the stories of folklore, how then the client is interacting with those. But the same thing, uh, the same modality can be used for um, fictional works for LARPing, for example. There's a lot of interesting correlation between live-action roleplay, um, Dungeons and & Dragons, and paganism, because you're going into the same kind of quasi-reality with that, right? It's interesting. So there's a lot of pieces to that, um, but I, I'd say I, I'm really more of a transpersonal narrative systems. Um, I, I tend to like to see connections and how people are showing up to those connections. So if any of that kind of, if that made sense, I feel like I just blabbered on, but. <laughs> no, that makes perfect sense. And it actually triggered something in my mind. It's interesting you brought up Dungeons and Dragons because I am a teacher on the side and I'm starting a new group for uh, tabletop role playing. And because we haven't started the actual game yet, I don't know what characters are there. I don't know what the world is. I'm letting the, the students build that. Mm. But I'm structuring it on Joseph Campbell's monomyth for story beats throughout the semester. I love it. I love it. And it just, it, it all comes full circle. And the reason I'm doing this specifically is to teach social justice Excellent. and empowerment for individuals and teamwork. So using all of this together worked really well. Then you'll know exactly what I mean with this, right? the the ability to the ability to perceive something that is not right in front of you creates empathy. It creates that that play. That power of play is huge, and particularly with social justice, it allows people to step out of their own reality and into mm -hmm. other people's shoes, right? I love it. There's so many amazing things coming out now about using fandom and genre in, uh, in, in therapy, in social justice circles, in even just community building. There's some amazing community building pieces. And that actually ties back in with the spiritual because spirituality has been used, like uh, marginalized alternative spirituality has been used in community building for ages. There's amazing ancestral justice social work going on in the BIPOC, BIPOC communities. 
And I talk about one example in the book about how the Day of the Dead celebration in 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 mm. um, Los Angeles was originally started and developed and built as a as a way for the Chicano community in Los Angeles, downtown Los Angeles, to to explore themselves. And it came around the same time and and was it really intermixed with the Chicano liberation movement. So it's it's amazing what when looking at story in that way can develop. So that's fantastic that you're doing. How how old do you work with usually? It starts at fifth grade and goes up to high school right now. Wonderful, wonderful. Oh, then I have some resources for you afterwards. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, I'm very interested in the the way that play, and I imagine this is pretty much what mystery plays are or how they were founded. It allows you to step into a role of empowerment and puts you in situations that would be challenging otherwise in your everyday life but it gives you the tools you need to interact and deal with those and then you can leave the table leave the game and go on to your everyday life and you have some of that empowerment because you've already dealt with the situation in a safe space i would say that the empowerment the empowerment comes with with that shift in reality. I think we, uh, on a brain level, it's very easy for humans to get in stuck into particular brain paths, right? And I think when we look at, for example, sacred mystery play, or even just going to the theater and being involved, being and, and experiencing that dissolving of the fourth wall. It, it 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 touches us in a different way. I think that you know when you look at mystery uh, cults, oftentimes one of the hallmarks of mystery cults, both ancient and, and modern too, is that the initiation is often by taking part in the story. So look at Ephesus, yes, uh, Dionysiac um, mysteries, or of the very famous one centered on on on. Um, Oh, on Persephone and uh, and her mother um, Demeter, right? You you're you're engaging with sacred story by being coming part of that story, and in becoming part of that story, you leave being spiritual transformed, emotionally transformed. All of these pieces, that empowerment comes from the well. We've come to the other side, right? I think it's really powerful, and I think it's really needed now because so many people are being. Uh, at least what I'm seeing with my clients, they're getting locked into a narrative, a social narrative that there is no future, that everything looks glum, everything looks dim. And to be able to see themselves in a different light, I think that's really the power of why LARPing is so popular. I've had some experiences um, through LARPing where, you know, it's, it's different if you're reading a story than taking part in the story. And oftentimes, a lot of LARPers that I knew anyways, um, would actually experiment with their own identities through their characters. They would develop a character that was entirely composed of things that they wanted to bring, build into their own life, but they didn't feel comfortable doing. And so by doing that, they could explore in a safe environment. One of my friends, uh, he always saw himself as, as being very cowardly and very weak because that's the narrative that his parents gave him. And then he started to um, to play a paladin in one of the in one of the games mm. we were playing, and go figure. Now he's a paladin in life, right? It's it is that f you know fake it until you make it. But I think that's I think that 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 doesn't do justice to what is actually happening there. So um, I'm excited. That's exciting that you're doing that. That's wonderful. 
Yeah, thank you. It's interesting that you brought up participants who aren't actively engaged in the play because there is that ability for the audience to get the same effect as the players that you don't get anywhere else. It's only in live action play. And we lose a lot of that with movies and television and even with podcasts. And it actually triggered a memory for me where I was in college. I was part of an intertribal group locally and they would perform ceremonies. And there were many times where I wasn't engaged in the ceremony, but I was there as a participant, as a, a, uh, a witness, I guess, or just someone on the outside. And I was affected by it as much as the people inside, say, like the sweat lodge. And I was hearing the same things that they were hearing from the outside. And that was incredible. It, it really has this. And again, it's it was an ancestral engagement. And even though they weren't my ancestors directly, I was still part of that event. Mm-hmm. And, and that's so powerful. And like you said, there's it, it's something that's really lost a lot in modern society we kind of have a disconnect from even our neighbors, let alone our ancestors. Very much so. Not many people are privileged enough to live near their direct ancestors anymore. This is the thing. This is exactly it. There's a lot of people... When I was writing the book, my context was as an immigrant to North America whose ancestors are all directly on the other side of the pond. But there's a lot of people over here in the diaspora, um, various diasporas, who within the family, the story of the homeland is really important. Mm -hmm. But it's the homeland from perhaps 100 or 200 or 300 years ago. The ancestors of 200 years ago are more important necessarily than the ancestors here. And I think that that sometimes I I don't want to I don't want to put too many words in people's mouths, but I think that there can be a disconnect, especially now because of the conversations around around cultural appropriation, around colonization, and around you know who really has a right to to exist on this landscape, who has a right to develop relationships with this landscape, and what what is that relationship? What what does that look like? And I think that there's a lot of work needing to be done still around Westerners of a settler background relating to and building a an authentic connection with this landscape that is inclusive of all of the other communities that have been here longer and who uh, who, who really have that deep spiritual connection and that deep energetic connection with this landscape. I think that when you don't see a place as home, or when you see a place uh, as as only your home, then there can be an objectification, and I think that that is, um, I think that's one of well, that's a very white Protestant kind of Western European way of looking at the world is mine, 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 right? <laughs> mm-hmm. But I, I I I do think that that um, that participant a piece is really important because you know the more the more that ceremonies, the more that that relationships are acted out and and shown and 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 that process invites others in even if it's just people witnessing right with social justice representation matters it's important that we have rallies it's important that we have marches even if it doesn't feel like anything is done by each individual one it's important that we have we have that visibility 
unfortunately, that is also true of the things that are not necessarily as healthy in society too. And they seem to be very visible right now. So we need to be very visible too. But that's a whole other conversation, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I mean, for better or worse, it makes things visible. You know who is part of what community. And what you're saying must be very impactful because we have a Blue Jay in the background uh, chiming uh, in. Yes. <laughs> so I'm not sure how familiar you are with um, the history of West Virginia. And what you were saying about a connection to the land is something that we run into a lot here due to extraction industry. It started out, it was logging. And then, believe it or not, um, oil. We had oil for a short time. And then natural gas and coal is the one that everyone remembers which is very similar to what they had in Wales. Uh, a lot yes. of Welshmen ended up in West Virginia for that reason. <laughs> and it seems like for a lot of us, we don't get that opportunity to interact with the land because at any given time, it could be pulled out from under us. It could be undermined or strip mined or anything like that where, I mean, in my own background, I ran into that. I grew up on a farm and for me, my neighbors were the trees. They was the mm -hmm. the fields, the bushes, the the ponds, mm. and then a lot of that got strip mined. So all of these people, in a in a broader sense, uh, in an animistic sense, these people are gone from my life now. Right, and that's one of the things I try to instill into my students that I teach as well is not directly that things are people, but it's trying to get them to, to look at it from a different way, to, to reframe how they look at things. It's very easy to get them to understand that animals are people yes, because they are uh, living organisms that are up and moving around. And it's the very mm -hmm. scientific definition of living. Yes, But when you try to extend that to trees, to plants, or to something intangible like a river, where it's it's made up of a sum of its parts, that starts to get a little bit more broad and intangible. Do you actually have any advice for working with the intangible concepts of nature? Well, as you're saying it, um, one of my favorite lines from Confucius comes up, and it is in the. I think it's in the book. I hope it's in the book. But Confucius, um, of course, massively celebrated part of Chinese culture. He said for Chinese, because in Chinese culture, you have this uh, a huge focus on ancestral work. Confucius said that he was really, really for ancestral work as a, as a state institution. He really wanted to make it a state institution. Mm. He said a very interesting thing that ancestor work becomes, or uh, I would say broadly spiritual work, becomes a moral imperative because if you can teach children if you can teach the community to take care of the needs of the intangible they will be more likely to then know how to take care of the needs of the tangible right mm. so it's it on that one level it's that shifting of that paradigm i think the other piece to that is like, like in building the empathy and building the community I think that the other piece to that is that we need to really become less human focused. We need to become more connected to the world around us. Mm -hmm. And I think that in some, like in the older ways, our lifestyles supported that. If you were living in a cob hut or a cob building or a wattle and daub building somewhere uh, 300, 400 years ago, and you were 
literally at the mercy of the, of the elements, then you would become a lot more aware of the elements around you. I think that modern technology really takes us away from that awareness. I was reading a study a couple of weeks ago, which was talking about how attention span and even hearing has shifted since since our our dependence on technology, where while back 200, 300 years ago, we would have become a lot more aware of the flickering of the fire, the sound of the blue jays outside. Now we block a lot of that off. It, it mm. just is background noise to us and we just don't pay attention. And I think that paying attention is really important because if you're not paying attention to the things that are close to you and like right in front of you, then that makes not paying attention to other things a lot more easier, right? Right. So I, I would say, I mean, going through, like, at least from an ancestral lens, coming back to the book, I would say that, that you know, going through that practice, actually experiencing and, and engaging your five senses or six senses in some cases is really important. But I think that can be for every life. You know, some of the, the best and my favorite therapy techniques involve engaging the senses. One I use often is focusing, which is going into the body and focusing in on what parts of the body are responding when you're thinking about a certain situation and becoming really attuned to that feeling. You know, becoming aware of body language, knowing that, knowing that when you're talking to somebody, if there's a slight shift, picking up on that and being able to, to empathize with that or to go into that deeper, right? I think now a lot of people are like this. I mean, you, you can't see, your, your listeners can't see that, but like, you know, on their phones constantly. And, and, you know, I mean, going to Toronto is a nightmare for that because I feel like shouting at people so much because they're, you know, they get in the way because they're on their phones. I think that that, that, that lack of communication, that lack of, of community is big. Now, that being said, people are connecting, People are connecting virtually, but it isn't the same as, as connecting in person. And I think that that person, that personal touch is really important. I, I think I may have strayed away from your question, but I hope that answered it. <laughs> uh, that's okay. It, it actually, <laughs> what you bring up with the screen, again, is very similar to what we were talking about with the mystery play and the audience. Mm -hmm. You interpersonal reaction in relation to each other compared to talking to someone distantly or remotely. Yes. It's not quite the same. Yeah, yeah, it's not quite the same. It's there's something about being physically close to somebody. You're picking up on the energy, same as you know the distant the difference between listening to an ASMR of walking through a forest and actually going and walking in the forest. Mm -hmm. You're engaging all of those senses. I think that also comes to then how and one of my major interests is in uh, memory systems and how mm -hmm. how the mind works from a from a, a basic biochemistry background uh, or approach and um and something that that i have learned and i'm also a storyteller as well i practice storytelling on a regular basis something that i absolutely love is when you can create that energetic bubble around whoever you're talking to and when you engage in storytelling, that bubble goes up and you all then enter into a paracosm, into a shared universe, a shared world that creates intimacy, right? And I noticed that when I talk to a lot of my colleagues who are writers, and I'm sure many of the people that you, you connect with as well, 
Um, they'll, they, I'm seeing a trend where now audiobooks are becoming a bigger thing for people because they prefer to be told a story, to be told information mm-hmm. than necessarily read it themselves. I think that's partly because of attention span. Our culture is just shifting. Like I, I have no attention span to sit down and read. I have to listen to audiobook if I want to. If I want to take it in, I force myself. And as a writer, I know that's so weird to say, but. <laughs> Well, it's it's how you engage. It's how you're able to engage. So you still have that engagement. Very much so. I know at least uh, in America, the audiobook craze comes from multitasking, which is not necessarily a good thing, but it, mm. it works. Mm-hmm. If you're able to do a mechanical task that doesn't require concentration, hey, you can focus on the book. So nothing wrong with that. But there is something to, I think there is something to be said about that oral nature, that being told there's a connection of hearing voice. Um, and, and I mean, the traditional way of information was shared was that focused, you know, somebody giving you that instruction. I mean, the, the archetype of a storyteller around the world is always the same. But I think that's also, that ties back into what we were saying before about that attention span. Back then, there was a lot more of an ability to engage with one's environment. You know, the flickering of the fire, Mm -hmm. the voice of the storyteller, the darkness that was shrouding around, right? It creates that ambience and creates that way in. Now it's like, oh, I'm doing the dishes and I'm listening to a podcast and my cat's growling in the back and all these things, right? (laughs) You know? (laughs) Well, there, there, you get a lot more, too, out of the audiobook because you have that inflection and the pacing and everything from the voice actor who, now that I think about it, they are basically professional storytellers. Even if they are not writing or creating the stories, they are the ones that are relaying that information. Very much so. And I could compare that even to digital books compared to a physical book. Um, you're getting the same effect. The digital screen doesn't always work as well, doesn't always, it gives you that opportunity to click over to an app or something else, to something else you're doing. Whereas a book, you sit down and you have to focus, you have to concentrate your effort into it, which for some, like you said, is a hindrance, but for others, it's that physical tangibility that engages more than one sense while reading that I, book. I, I very much so. And I, I think I've been unfair in this interview. I think I've been speaking from a very generational lens. I used to work in a bookstore a couple of years ago during the pandemic. And what I noticed was that pendulum is swinging a lot of like under 25s, let's say under 20s. They're really re-engaging with things. You know, the book industry has like the, the physical book industry has never been booming so much, right? Kids are learning how to knit. Kids are learning how to do all of these crafts Mm -hmm. that really require attention and and looking. Kids are going to the gym, right? Kids are are engaging with all sorts of of, of different things, things that people my generation and a little older, I think we, we, we didn't have as much because we're of the internet age. Like I remember the internet came out uh, in my home anyways, when I was 12. So 2000, you know, it's like, Suddenly, everything was online. You, you see, I, I'm seeing a, a, a generational shift, and I think that is partly because of a response. But I think that's just a natural the pendulum swinging this way and that way throughout the generations. So, again, that triggered something in my mind that I never even considered before. Things like knitting or handcrafts that is basically mm-hmm. stimming or using a fidget toy of some sort. It, it is in that mm-hmm. engagement. 
And that's what our previous generations did. If you think of the stereotype of a little old lady waiting for an appointment, she just pulls her knitting out of her bag to have something to keep her occupied. Absolutely. And it's interesting to see us come back to that, where we had the fidget toys that didn't have a purpose. They kept you occupied, but they didn't do anything. You didn't have a sense of accomplishment at the end. So that's a... That's an interesting concept I never even thought about. Until <laughs> well, now. and, and it's, it's, uh, it's a fascinating concept because it also comes back to then relationship, right? I mean, the necessity of knitting as opposed to it just being a uh, something that, that you would do when you're bored, right? Like 100 years ago, clothing was not regularly bought. It was, it was made, right? And so mm-hmm. like a knitted sweater, if you had a knitted sweater or a knitted scarf or something like that, that takes a very long time to make, first of all, and it's probably also a much stronger than what you can buy in the store. So chances are, if you know how to make it, you also know how to repair it. And I think that's also coming around too. So the relationship to thing also shifts and changes. And I think cross-culturally, like, it doesn't matter what culture you're in, you know, 100, 200 years ago, most people were manufacturing their own things at home. Um, a lot of people were, were uh, you know, raising their own livestock, raising their own animals, especially in the agrarian cultures. They were, you know, going and hunting and, and gathering themselves and also creating and manufacturing their own goods at home. And those things that weren't were bought in. But most, you know, most people would have been creating that. I mean, look at the um, all of the reenacting, reenactor um, YouTube channels and, and what like Townsend's and, and the history reenaction, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I don't see too many people who know that channel. And it's so exciting when someone brings it up. <laughs> I will introduce you to folk. A lot of the homesteaders that I know love that channel too, right? But I mean, he's a good example of that. He speaks about the history of that. And that's ancestral to us. And they they appreciated their things a lot more because they knew how much effort and time went into creating and manufacturing them. And I think that that gets back to that animistic approach to life, right? I, you're looking at the animistic uh, cultures around the world right now, Japan, a lot in Southeast Asia, a lot of them have... Like, while capitalism is trying to come in and, and has heavily come into some of those cultures, there is also, especially in Japanese culture, a, a respect for thing because those things are animate, right? But that's a whole other tension. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's strange to think that YouTube, of all things, a technology that we were just talking about that typically disconnects people is what's bringing people back to basically ancestral crafts and tasks where, like you said, these kids are learning how to knit most likely on YouTube because our generation was never taught that. And we had forgotten that from our grandparents, but it's giving them a connection to an ancestor that they never even met, but they are at some point doing the same things that they would have shared otherwise with like their grandmother or grandfather. Totally it. And and I think that comes that back to that idea of, of then relationship and, and family. I talk a lot in my book about different forms of family. And a lot of younger people 
are really disconnected from family, I think. Um, and especially at the end, like looking at some of the age groups here, you know, going off to college or university or, or going out on your own, striking out on your own in your early 20s is a scary time because you're often not with your family, right? And so that idea of then chosen family becomes big. And I've noticed in like uh, going back to university last year and this year, um, and in, and really talking with a lot of the first year, second year students who, you know, they're, they're pulling out their knitting, they're hanging out, they're, they're learning how to sew, they're learning how to create cosplay costumes, they're learning how to do all of these skills, right? And it's often a communal thing for them. So, you know, the rise, if you look at it uh, at any major urban center, um, I doubt very... I doubt that you'll have a hard time finding a craft circle at a coffee shop. I doubt very, very much that you'll find a like a social group, a social knitting group for the under twenties or for the under thirties at uh, like any of the local downtown hanging spots. And so I think it becomes a a shared sense of community while also focusing on skill. And I love that. I think that that's really powerful. And it, I mean, it goes right back to the ancestral image of you know the quilting circles, right? Or or other craft circles. I was I was even thinking of just people sitting around napping flint. How essential that was. That was definitely you could do it on your own, but it's a lot more engaging if you have several guys sitting there and you could share techniques this on the, the spot. Thing, right? Exactly. And and even like in, in traditional culture around the world right now, like oftentimes the uh, the chore circles become also the gossip circles, become the hangout circles, become the, the bonding circles, right? Mm-hmm. What's interesting then, um, in considering then the individual part of that is that traditionally when you look at like say um say spinning weaving individual work that can only like mm-hmm. that can be done communally but is often done individually oftentimes those traditions also have wrapped up into them um divination and scrying and so they become spiritual pieces oh, right yes. um i know that in modern heathenry for example the distaff is is not only just uh, a domestic device for women or for for um for uh, feminine individuals but it also becomes a divinatory symbol for them because as you're spinning as you're weaving you're mm-hmm. going in and you're engaging you're engaging you're relating you might not be relating to other humans but in that moment you're engaging and relating to the spirit right so it's interesting that we actually covered something about that specifically with uh, Catherine Heath's book, Elves, mm. Witches, and Gods, which it's it's heathen magic, but a good portion of it is using the distaff yes. and spinning and weaving in order to enact the spells. Totally. So that's a, a really interesting callback to an episode that you may not have even known I, I that I covered. It's in your list, but I didn't have a chance to go through. I have I have looked at your uh, your list just to see what other books you've covered and what what other things you've done, and I, I did see that. So that's cool. It, it's definitely a good book if that is something you're interested in, as far as like engaging with a physical craft and how it applies to paganism and magic. It's a very very interesting combination. That's cool. We are coming up on the one hour mark. So is there anything you would like to plug before we get out of here? Of course. So my book is actually available now. So it releases. um, I I know it's a surprise to me. So people are now starting to ship them out of of the Llewellyn Warehouse. Officially, I think the date for Amazon and, and, and Barnes & Noble and those companies is September 8th. 
So my book, Ancestral Whispers, is available, and uh, and I'm looking forward to listening to your review. I, I, your early review was really, really fantastic. That was a real big boost for me, so I really want to say thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. If people are interested, I am taking um, therapy and spiritual direction clients, so my uh, website, uh, benstimson.com, is available. I also have a load of classes booked on there and, and organized for the next year. I, I want to do uh, both kind of more psychotherapeutic and also spiritual topics. So I have a, a load of stuff on there. I have a, a connection. Well, not connection. Um, I'm involved in a big ancestral summit that will be happening online. And that information can be also found on my website. So a, a lot of the main people who are writing in ancestral work and root work in Conjuring and, 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 and Witchcraft uh, are contributing to this details is coming out in november 1st and 2nd and then it'll be an online and you can uh, i think you'll have six months of of ability to access those so that's really cool that'll be on my website and apart from that no I, this has been fantastic thank you so much for having me on yes absolutely one last question i know this is a question i get from my audience quite a bit will you have autographed copies of the book available so because of where I am at, it's difficult to do that at this stage because I need to buy stock in to sign them and then send them back out again. In Ontario, the shipping fee would be $20 um, just because of how I know it, Ontario's like like Canada's postal system is is messed up. So I, I won't have them available. But what I'm doing, I'm, I'm organizing um uh, book plates so I can sign book plates and then ship those out to people so I haven't gotten that set up yet but I will in which case then you just pay for shipping and handling I think maybe five or ten bucks or something like that and then you can just paste that right into your book excellent easier way to do it I think <laughs> quite a bit yes yeah well thank you so much for joining us tonight and see the book review should be coming out on Wednesday which means it's already been posted by the time everyone hears this. That is Ancestral Whispers by Ben Stimson. Definitely grab yourself a physical copy. You will be reading this multiple times. So thank you again and have a good night. Thank you everybody. Hey everyone, Natalie here from The Pendulum's Path. If you need guidance, direction, spiritual connection, or more, then listen up. I have worked as a psychic and a medium for over three years, connecting people from all over the world with their loved ones in spirit, giving them insight and guidance into their current situations, the past healings that need to be worked on, and what it is they need to know today in order to have a better future. It would be my absolute honor if you would visit my website at www.thependulumspath.com. I also offer emailed readings for those with busy schedules too. Also, for you goblins who subscribe to the Esoteric Book Club, I have a special coupon code just for you. Enter the code STAYWEIRD to get $5 off of any order of $25 or more. Hope to see you there.